there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Tongue, episode 67, King of the Hill. By the start of 1920, the Chinese government dominated by Duan Chirui had been critically undermined in the eyes of the nation by his association with the Japanese government and his failure to properly address the popular demands at the heart of the May 4th movement. And then there was the general corruption, the ongoing civil war in the South, and tense relations with other militarized factions. It wasn't a sustainable situation, and for Duan, everything would unravel in short order. Wu Peifu, the second-in-command of the rival Zhili clique, formed an agreement in principle with the southern warlords that Duan had to go. The ongoing civil war would open a new front to the north. Duan's Anhui clique drew up the main part of its military force around Beijing in July 1920 in preparation. On paper, it was a formidable fighting force, as Duan had been receiving numerous loans from the Japanese for the purpose of assembling a modern army loyal to him. Fighting began on July 14th, and initially things swung towards the Anhui, as they were able to push the Zhili force advancing in the capital back for a few days. But on the 17th, Wu managed to lead a force around the Anhui lines and take over a major army headquarters, capturing the leader of the local Anhui forces facing it. The sudden loss of its commanders threw the Anhui army into disarray, and by the next day, it was in total retreat. At this point, Zheng Zhulin and the Fengtian clique up in Manchuria sensed blood in the water and entered the battle, marching on Beijing from the north. Outflanked and facing superior forces, the Anhui army routed totally once the second front opened, and effective resistance was over in days. Duan resigned his post and fled to the Japanese section of the port city of Tianjin, only about 100 miles from the capital. So close, yet so far away from power. His Japanese ally allowed him residence, but declined to assist him, despite their investments in his government. It had been Teruchi, the old militarist prime minister, that had supported him all those years. By 1920, though, Hara Takahashi was in charge, and Japan's policy had become a more hands-off while the Siberian expedition dominated their affairs. The combined Zhili-Fengtian forces took Beijing on the 23rd, and the fight was over after just nine days. Most of the Anhui warlords would be co-opted or disposed of by this new alliance, and their influence would never again recover. This is a good early example of the reoccurring problem with the warlord factions, and that when times were good, you could be deceived into thinking that they were actually stable. The Anhui clique had dominated the central government and numerous wealthy provinces. But then, something really bad happened, like being tag-teamed by the two other major factions, and the whole thing crumbled away immediately. There isn't any real way to assign deeper meaning to the Anhui's defeat. They were a bunch of opportunists who got together when things were going good for a leader that could provide for them. The second that stopped being true, well, a lot can happen in nine days. But that isn't to say the Anhui clique went totally away. Granted, their only open power base remaining was down in Zhejiang province, and Duan, their most prominent leader, was confined to domestic exile. But many government officials and military commanders throughout the nation kept up the network amongst each other. Keep in mind that these cliques were not actually governments and barely even shadow governments. They were primarily just networks of individuals who were supposed to cooperate and look out for each other. And while the Anhui clearly lost out on this first major power struggle, the various personal relationships continued. And as we shall see in the future, the remnants of the Anhui would still be active in trying to plot a way to at least get some form of payback against their hated rivals. 
So now we have two separate cliques hunkering down together in the cap. Understandably flush with their quick victory, they wasted little time in dividing the spoils. Sao Kun, overall leader of the Zhili, took several northern provinces for his own, including the capital of Beijing. His subordinate, Wu, the mastermind of the military victory, set up control over the Hubei province after a little warlord-style disloyalty. The province had been controlled by a Zhili-aligned strongman, but the fellow had suffered an invasion from a rival to the south, who himself was aligned with the coalition that ruled the southern regions of the country that had been in rebellion against Wang. And yes, I did say Wu before the war with the Anhui had secured an understanding with the southern warlords, but that was just an agreement between the big fish. The little guys were still skirmishing amongst each other. The displaced Zhili warlord appealed to Wu for help, but Wu simply camped north of Hubei and watched his erstwhile ally get his power base destroyed. When the dust settled, Wu rolled in and took the province for himself from the southern-aligned warlord, finally getting some home turf he had been angling for for some years to that point. Such was the nature of Chinese politics at the time. Meanwhile, Zheng secured his interests in Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang, which pretty much made him master of China's northern frontiers. These acquisitions were far-flung and not terribly stable, and his attentions would turn southwards again before long. In fact, in securing the biggest possible coalition against the Anhui, Wu really opened himself and his boss Cao to some problems down the road. Zhang had secured Manchuria, and was himself ambitious and looking to expand his influence within China. And there was only one direction he could really go, and that was towards Beijing. The Anhui-Zhili War had been a smashing success for him as well. The Fengtian army hadn't suffered much in the way of casualties, and had managed to lay their hands on much of the Anhui's weaponry that they had been building up before the conflict. And with Duan in exile, Zheng was suddenly the primary Japanese client. And while they certainly preferred Zheng to chill and focus on Manchuria, they weren't going to break relations over him playing some power politics. And Zheng didn't really have a reason to withdraw back to his home base just yet, either. If he did, then he would leave power in the hands of the Zhili clique, who really didn't have any greater claim than he to managing the government. Zheng also felt threatened by the newly empowered Zhili, as having made the choice of getting involved between the other two cliques, now had to reckon with dealing with just the one. And the Zhili had snatched up all those rich Anhui provinces in northern and central China, empowering them considerably. Wu Peifu especially was viewed with suspicion by Zheng. Despite Cao Kun being the official head of the faction, and Wu being genuinely loyal to his boss, Wu was also recognized as a capable military leader and the true driving force in the Zhili clique. Wu wanted a reunited China, and compared himself to George Washington as a new founding father of the country. Ambitious stuff, and Zhang wasn't interested in that or Wu personally. Upon opening negotiations with the Zhili over the direction of China and the nature of their relationship, he would treat only with Cao, a snub that Wu appreciated immediately. Zhang wasn't in a position to stop the transfer of power in the provinces the Zhili had taken over, but he was able to block changes in the federal government, which meant that Zhu Zhicheng, who had been effectively Duan's appointee to the presidency, stayed on and immediately started stoking tensions between the Feng Tian and Zhili to better secure his position. There were also disagreements about reconvening the National Assembly, as Zhang wanted it done immediately, while Cao was more reticent. Remember, the elected members were dominated by the Anfu Club, and ergo the Anhui. And while most of the representatives were realists who could probably be swayed, or bribed, or threatened into cooperating with the new regime, 
they wouldn't be the most loyal and might go over to Zhang as revenge. Something that Zhang was probably thinking too. Sal preferred to hold off on reopening the legislature while he wound down the civil war to the south. If he reconciled the southern coalition totally, then their representatives could come north and act as a counterweight to Zhang's influence. Something that Zhang was also probably thinking and wanted to avoid. And speaking of the South, let's check in and see what they're up to during the start of the 20s, as things weren't quiet down there either. The coalition of southern warlords that had welcomed Sun Yat-sen to form an opposition government in the South to Duan had grown tired of his independence, as well as his insistent calls for a full-scale invasion of the North. They deposed him, and not possessing an army big enough to resist on its own, was forced to return again to Shanghai. This time, though, he would begin taking steps and making connections that would lead him and his followers to obtaining a more solid base to work from, although familiar setbacks were going to keep on popping up. He reassembled his Kuomintang party and received the support of a warlord named Chen Jiongmin, who was still loyal to him and his cause. It was an important pickup, as Chen maintained a personal fiefdom on the border between the Guangdong and Fujian provinces. Soon was unshakable in his belief that only by securing the south and retaking the country province by province could he overcome the more established northern factions. Plus, he had a lot more support in Guangdong and its capital city, Guangzhou. The province's size and wealth would make it the perfect launching pad. Chen, for his part, was also a warlord cut from a different cloth and subscribed to a nationalist school of thought that a united nation was a necessity and that Soon was the man to do it. Opposing them, most directly though, was the Guangxi clique of warlords that were based out of, where else, Guangxi province, and also controlled Guizhou and most of Guangdong. They were fiercely protective of their authority on their home turf, and had already jettisoned soon over his attempts at controlling them. As I mentioned earlier, in the back half of 1920, the southern warlords had secured an understanding in principle with Wu and the Zhili up north, that they would not make moves against each other. Soon and Chen used this to rally an attack on the southern junta, accusing them of selling out the dream of a truly independent and unified China in favor of squabbling warlord affairs. While Soon had set up political leadership in Shanghai, what troops he did have had remained in Guangzhou and had linked up with Chen. For his part, Chen had a significant 30,000-man army in southern Fujian. It was not the largest force in China by any means, but the coalition of southern cliques were not terribly united or interested in helping each other either. Take the lesson of the Zhili Anhui War to the north as an example. The Anhui had a large force and a huge network of support, but the moment that momentum shifted against them, it all fell apart. Even a small force, if properly motivated, could win the day in warlord China. And together, they quickly advanced into Guangdong throughout October, and by the end of the month, Guangzhou, which sits just to the northwest of Hong Kong, had been captured. Soon, accompanied by units of the Chinese Navy loyal to him, which he had actually bought off back in World War I with some bribe money sent by the German Empire, entered Guangzhou finally triumphant. The Guangxi clique at this point had a falling out with their counterparts in the neighboring Yunnan province, which for them really could not have come at a worse time. Their army had just been soundly beaten, and now their erstwhile partners, directly to their west, had switched their allegiances over to Sun. Chen did not waste any time in sending his army into Guangxi proper to finish the pacification of the south. It would take the better part of a year to clear that rugged province out, but by August of 1921, the Guangxi leadership had been beaten and their armies dispersed. 
Notable among those soldiers who dispersed into the hills and mountains of the province was a man named Li Zongrin. He was a rising star in that first iteration of the Guangxi clique and would manage to keep a couple thousand soldiers around him together as a functioning force. When Chen withdrew his army from the province in 1922, he would begin building up a power base of his own. At first, just a few counties, but by 1925, the whole province. In doing so, he would create another Guangxi clique, which we'll get into later, but that just goes to show that even if a warlord faction was crushed, if the vacuum of power wasn't replaced quickly, then the warlord presence would just come right back. You would be forgiven for thinking that it was at this point the fortunes of Soon would have started to turn around. But nope, this was the same old luckless Soon. This time, the trouble started between him and Chen. Chen wanted to solidify their hold in Guangdong and lay the groundwork for a more federalized Chinese state, with the provinces being the basis of governance. Soon, on the other hand, had not abandoned his vision of a strong, centralized government and to that effect was planning on what he dubbed the Northern Expedition. It really wasn't a complicated plan. He would just use the above-average army he had at his disposal to march up north and meet the Xili in a showdown. Given how the Anhui had fallen apart like a house of cards after a week of fighting, this might not have seemed like such a far-fetched idea. But it was risky, and Chen knew it. Their armies weren't much more solid at this point than those up north, and if their army advanced too far up there and suffered a major defeat, well, they might not have that army once they made it back down south. This conflict of opinion would cause an impasse between the two that would shortly boil over due to events in the north. Back again in the north, the Xili and Fengtian cliques were spending most of 1921 gradually coming to the mutual realization that things really weren't going to work out between them. Once he had his new province of Hubei, Wu started making moves to organize North and Central China against Zheng. The Zhili had managed to secure backing from the British and the Americans, but this was countered by Zheng drawing on Japanese support. One other added wrinkle was that Zheng had also gotten cozy with Sun's new government in the South. The idea was that if Sun actually got his expedition off the ground, that Zheng would join in and the Zhili would be unable to concentrate their forces. So, Wu was understandably concerned with being attacked from the north and the south at the same time. His understanding with the southern warlords had been with the coalition led by the Guangxi clique, which was now gone. In response to the potential encirclement, he began making preparations for war. Zhang didn't sit around and wait for Wu, though, and in December 1921 presented an ultimatum that either his choice of premier would be installed as the head of the government, or there would be a war right there, right then. Wu not yet ready for that step by the end of 1921, caved into the demand. Leon Shiyi, in his position as the new premier, immediately started rehabilitating former, and maybe still secretly, members of the Anhui clique. This was a direct threat to Wu, and he deposed the Feng Tian-backed prime minister after barely a month on the job in January 1922, on the grounds that the man was too close to the Japanese. Which, of course, also served as a rebuke to Zhang, of his own Japanese connections. This set off a propaganda war with the two cliques slamming each other in the Chinese press over the course of several months. Finally, on April 29, 1922, war broke out between the factions, and honestly, this wasn't much more of a glorious affair than the last clique showdown. The fighting again focused around the city of Beijing, with both forces split into two groups, to the west and the east of the city. In the West, Wu led his battle-hardened veterans of his previous conflicts 
and like in the war with the Anhui, managed to outflank the Fengtian and ended up behind their lines on April 30th, just a day into the fighting. However, the Fengtian were not beaten just yet and managed to regroup and push Wu back. Wu responded by utilizing a very old-school military maneuver and feigned a retreat. The Fengtian troops rushed to pursue his army, which promptly turned back around on the disorganized Manchurians and routed them. To the east, the Zhili were only barely hanging on against Zheng Zhuolin himself. The overwhelming strength of the Fengtian army was concentrated in this sector along the coastline and was bearing down on the city of Tianjin. Zhao and his forces were in the area, but Zhang had made the calculation that Cao wouldn't make any move until Wu had defeated the western Fengtian troops. Which was actually a good gamble, as Cao kind of just sat around waiting to see how everything would play out. Cao was very fortunate that Wu was a Confucian in the old style and didn't want to overthrow his boss, because Cao himself was kind of worthless. However, once the outcome in the west was clear, the eastern Fengtian troops lost heart and the advance was halted. Once Wu had redeployed his troops to the east of the capital, things just fell apart for the Fengtian clique. The army started disintegrating, and Zhang was forced to call a retreat to the north. They attempted to switch over to defense, but tens of thousands more Zhili troops arrived from further south, and the Fengtian retired behind the Great Wall and scuttled back to Manchuria. The Zhili were now masters of northern China, and the conflict had lasted through to early June, barely two months in all. There were now two problems for the Zhili going into mid-1922. The first was what to do with Zheng. The Fengtian had definitely lost, and lost badly. This was no doubt a humiliation for Zheng, as he had poured some real resources into turning his army into a well-equipped fighting force. And it had broken after basically a month of fighting. But Zheng had some advantages that Duan and the Anhui did not have. First, his power base of Manchuria was distant from the rest of China and his enemies lacked the logistical capability to follow it. Also, telling the Zhili troops that they were going to be deployed to invade the rugged landscape of Manchuria probably wouldn't have gone over too well either. The second was that the organization of the Fangtian differed from the Zhili and Anhui cliques, and that it was less a network than it was a feudal pyramid with Zhang on top. There weren't factions within the faction, as the leadership was composed of Zhang's drinking buddies. So, Zhang was able to slink off back north, lick his wounds, and declare independence from the central government. Zhang also got in touch with the other, now more pressing problem for the Zhili, Sun Yat-sen. The consolidation of the south under Sun's leadership did not go unnoticed by the Zhili, and once the first Zhili-Fangtian War, as it became known, was over, Wu started looking into ways to deal with this. Sun was openly calling for an attack on the north but Wu proved to be adept politically as well as militarily. Working through Cao Kun, Wu intrigued to have the former president, Li Yuanhong, installed back into the presidency and the parliament reinstated in Beijing. Zhu Zhicheng, who was still clinging to the presidency at this time, was accused by Wu of plotting with Zheng and ergo against the government. On June 1st, 1922, Zhu was packed off and Li was installed again on the 11th. This appointment served to placate Chen Zhongming and convinced him that Wu could be considered a friend of federalism and provincial rights. It was those things in a united government that Chen was really looking for all along. Plus, he had kind of gotten tired of working with Sun. Chen, who had at this point no desire to go along with Sun's northern expedition idea, decided that the reconvening of the National Assembly and the return of Li Yuanhong to the presidency 
signaled that the Southern Rebellion was no longer needed. Whether Chen actually believed that the Zhili would allow him to rule Guangdong without interference, or if he was just looking for an excuse to get out of Sun's pending crusade, isn't really known. Sun, for his part, saw what was coming and attempted to remove Chen. However, Chen's army predictably backed him, and as the new regime in Beijing was established in June, a fresh five-week conflict broke out that saw Chen drive Sun Yat-sen and the Kuomintang out of Guangdong. Sun tried to coordinate resistance aboard a gunboat parked outside Guangzhou Harbor, alongside a rising subordinate of his, a young officer named Chiang Kai-shek. While Sun and his allies were beaten by Chen, he was impressed by Chiang's capabilities and, perhaps more importantly, his lack of a personal power base from which to go rogue. Chiang will eventually become the central figure in the history of China during this time period, but for now it is enough to know that this is where he was able to build a much closer rapport with Su. In August 1922, they managed to catch a ride on a British warship to Hong Kong, and from there, it was back to Shanghai to plot yet another comeback. By this time, things were going pretty good for Wu back in Beijing. His rivals were beaten, his on-paper boss depended on him, and he got all the glory of the victories over the past few years. But if you've been processing the general arc these warlords have been on, you are probably wondering how everything was going to fall apart for him. Well, the problem for Wu was that he was only the second in command. The Zhili clique didn't answer to Wu, and there were increasingly powerful officers to come out of these conflicts with the Anhui and Fiangtian. And with the National Assembly reconvened, that body started acting again as the mechanism for legislation and governance. Don't get me wrong, it was a compromised body that was heavily influenced by Cao, it just wasn't Wu that performed its managing. And while Cao certainly depended on Wu to keep everyone in line, he wasn't a servant of Wu's either, he was the boss. He had his own ambitions, and he was, after all, the confirmed leader of the clique. And what Cao wanted, now that the way was relatively clear, was the presidency. Now yes, Wu and himself had specifically engineered Li to regain the presidential office. That was more a pragmatic move to show good faith to the smaller groups than anything else. They didn't actually care about it. That being said, Wu was reluctant to back Cao in being appointed to the office. Li had stayed out of the factionalism that had spread since the death of Yuan Shikai, and he was seen as a unifier and still a hero of 1911, which is exactly what they needed to draw in many of the wayward provinces of China especially in the South. But once that unifying purpose had been mostly fulfilled, or perhaps more accurately once it was clear that Sun and Zhang weren't immediate threats, Li was seen by Cao as disposable. Li was also acting way too independently in the eyes of Cao, blocking or obstructing his decisions and appointments, much as he had with Duan in his previous stint as president. This just drove Cao further to the conclusion that he had to take the office for himself. He challenged Li with the task of improving the state's finances, which were increasingly dire. The state had defaulted on numerous loans, and foreign funding had dried up. With the provinces still largely out of reach for the national government, there was little to pay the bills. The task of finding the money was an impossible deliberately so, to undermine Li, and Sal made things worse by using the National Assembly to block Li's own efforts at trying to fulfill that task. Cao also spent the rest of 1922 and the first half of 23 agitating against him publicly for those failures. The feud between the two climaxed in June 1923, when a commander named Feng Yuzheng 
the warlord of the Zhi Li, who was desperate for cash and not finding any coming from Li, seized local customs houses in Beijing on June 13th to secure his desired funds. Those city customs houses were one of the few sources of revenue that went directly to the presidency, and Li's inability to respond pretty much destroyed whatever authority he might have had. Li fled to Tianjin, but found no safety there and was held at gunpoint to relinquish the presidential seals to Cao and resign his office. Now the way was open for Cao to make his bid for the presidency. To make it a sure thing, he ended up infamously bribing each member of the National Assembly five to 7,000 Chinese dollars to secure their cooperation. In October 1923, Cao claimed the presidency for himself. This set off a firestorm within the Zhili clique, as even the core officers of the group were repulsed at Cao's shameless and open displays of corruption. Public opinion of the regime sank still more. Zhang, of course, denounced this too, and carefully made his own preparations for a renewed war. Despite it all, Wu stood by his boss, even as Cao uh, tore apart the government that Wu had helped set up. Wu continued to show that very traditional loyalty to Cao. Uh, plus, probably figured that an inter-click war might not be such a good idea at that point. Despite the rumblings coming from the north, the Zhili clique tried to focus on simply controlling the core areas of China. Too bad for them, Zhang was out for blood now, and next week he'll be coming back to Beijing with everything he had, which turned out to be a lot more, as China became a huge market for the foreign arms trade. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.